2: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Martin Harris, the author of Leatherface Versus Tricky Dick, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as Political Satire. Uh, Martin, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about the book with you.
2: Can you start off by talking a little bit about how this book came to be, how you decided to um, sort of look at Nixon's administration of Watergate and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre?
1: Yeah, it's one of those things. There's a lot of different sort of factors that came together that ended up with this book uh, being written. I'll try to go through it quickly. I'm my background is I'm an academic. I'm a English PhD from Indiana University. I, in fact, my PhD was in seventeenth and eighteenth century British lit, and so actually I did a lot with satire, and so I've always had an interest in in satire, kind of in that traditional sense. Um, I also uh, did a lot of uh, kind of film criticism and studying of film. And then when I got into teaching, I was, I was kind of doing that on the side, like I would teach a class or I would write about film, and in fact, ended up sort of focusing on horror films quite a bit. So my first big article that I placed was one that, if you can believe this, I compared The Blair Witch Project to Pamela. Samuel Richardson's 1740 novel and talked about lots of coincidences between the production and the advertising and and promotion of those works and how they were both blockbusters and so on. Um, But anyway, wrote about Blair Witch Project, wrote about other horror films while I was teaching my English Lit and Great Books and and all of those kinds of classes. Um, Eventually, I ended up having this big career detour and it was caused by poker. Um, I was playing poker on the side. I was interested in it and reading about it, and and getting more and more involved with it. And then I started writing about poker more and more, and getting paid to write about poker, which made it even better. Um, and so I became, I ended up kind of having two careers going. I was an academic teaching full time, and then in the summers I was going to Las Vegas and. Right, you know, playing poker, writing about poker, and, in that, and that second uh, career kind of built up to the point where I was able to make that the full-time career, and I started teaching part-time about 10 years ago. Okay, so this interest in poker and the history of poker got me into studying U.S. presidents quite a bit, because a lot of presidents play poker, as it turns out, going all the way back to the 19th century. And one of the ones who played it the most was Richard Nixon. And in fact, it, some would argue that he was one of the best U.S. presidents who played poker, um, which is, of course, quite interesting because of the way his presidency ended. And we think about him being this kind of uh, you know, career politician who had lots of successes and some pretty wild uh, uh, incidents during his career, and then also some big failures and, and of course, the ending where he resigns the presidency. Um, so I became fascinated with Nixon, and I was obsessed. And it, as I was with poker before, I was reading everything I could and learning everything I could about Nixon. And then I had this horror background, right? And so at some point, I started putting together Watergate and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that these things seem to have certain things in common, the most Kind of obvious being the fact that they happened at the same time. That the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was conceived, written, shot, edited, produced, just as the Watergate scandal played out during those two years roughly um, from late seven, 1972 until Nixon resigned in August 1974, was pardoned in September. And the movie came out in October. And so that sort of encouraged me to think about it. And then what really encouraged me were quotes from Toby Hooper and Kim Henkel, who was the co-screenwriter of the film and who worked with Hooper, um, suggesting that Watergate was some kind of inspiration for the movie. Um, And these quotes and these comments that they made were never very specific. And they were kind of tantalizing, really. They would say that Watergate was an inspiration of the film, but it didn't wouldn't say exactly how. Um, but that encouraged me more to think about how does this movie maybe work as some kind of commentary on this political scandal. And I was already aware, and and, and people who know the film, they know that there's lots of uh, readings of it that talk about political meanings and references to Vietnam and to you know other issues that are happening and surrounding. Uh, those that period of the early 1970s. Um, and so I, it didn't seem like that much of a stretch to explore the film for its commentary on Watergate and its criticism of the Nixon administration. And that. so that's where the idea of the book came from. And then we can get into kind of how the book is, how I ended up writing the book and what I ended up doing with, with that comparison. But that's kind of where it all came from. So...
2: <laughs> I, I, that's great. And um I think my uh teenage son and his friends would probably love to learn about all the poker presidents. They have their, their very low stakes poker game that, you
1: know, they're great. Um, and those yeah. connections.
2: <laughs> I bet. Um, so can you, can you sort of set up then how you sort of get into this analysis, right? So before you, you sort of do, um, not a shot by shot, but you sort of walk through the movie doing an analysis um, with with the Watergate. Um, but you sort of put it into context and set it up, and especially for listeners who probably know a little bit more about my. I'm going to assume that people know a little bit more about Wa- Watergate than they might know about um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and as a film and sort of the the um, starts, the start of that as a film. So could you talk a little bit about sort of setting and putting us into context of to get to your analysis?
1: Yeah, this is great because I wrote the book in part, so I'm a teacher and I'm, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I wanted those who read this book to learn more about Watergate and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and those who have an interest in one or the other, maybe it, this book will help them learn about the other. Um, And if you're already interested in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, maybe we'll learn more about it and see it in a different way. And the same with Watergate. Um, I set up the book with this introduction where I talked about. Essentially, I began with the end of Watergate, and quote uh, Gerald Ford, uh, in that famous uh, statement where he describes uh, this is after he's just taken the oath of office, and he says we're at the that our long national nightmare is over. Um, And I take that idea of a nightmare, which is how so many political commentators talked about Watergate during that period. And they would describe it as being like a nightmare in part because of the way it was uh, so bewildering. You know, there's so many weird twists and turns to the story. And it also seemed to suggest uh, this kind of madness had taken over the president and his administration, um, which was very, very unsettling to Americans. And that's something I'm trying to get across in the book and trying to get people who are reading it today to appreciate, because when we look back in history, we might not necessarily think these things are quite so bad compared to what we've kind of experienced since then. Um, But in any case, um, talking about Watergate as being kind of like a nightmare, um, and then talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being a film that was pretty deliberately uh, made as uh, a film that was trying to produce the same kinds of effects that a nightmare effect that a nightmare causes um, unsettling and sort of disorienting. Um, And the filmmakers, Toby Hooper, the director and the others, their primary purpose was to make a movie that would just scare audiences silly. That that was by far, the most important uh, motive for the film. Um, And also to make a film perhaps that people would watch and pay money for and that they could make some sort of profit from. Um, But in doing so, they also wanted to comment on these contemporary horrors, the political horror of Watergate, among others. Um, And so uh, managed to uh, create this nightmare that, in a way sort of reflected the nightmare of of Watergate that was happening at the time. And so what I do in that introduction is I kind of, I t- I, I talk about the idea of it being uh, a commentary on the scandal, the film being a commentary on the scandal. And talk I talk about how we have a set of victims and villains in the film. Those who haven't seen the film, essentially it's one of these kind of uh, backwoods nightmare kind of, situations where some uh, innocent youths are traveling uh, through rural Texas and get a little uh, off the beaten path and then find themselves encountering this crazy family apparently who are who are all cannibals in some way that's kind of implied in the film it's not made too explicit uh, but anyway they're in great danger and they get picked off one by one and and it's um, a quite' uh, unsettling story that plays out but i talk about how the villains and the victims in the film we can kind of compare them to the villains and victims of watergate essentially the family kind of representing nixon and his administration who in a way sort of terrorized the american public who we would align with the victims of the movie Um, However, I'm very careful in the introduction not to get too carried away with talking about the movie being like an allegory of Watergate. Toby Hooper said explicitly that he considered the movie a political allegory, but I kind of back away from that a little bit. And I say, no, it's not really so much a direct allegory, but it is a satire that kind of takes the idea and presents it in this exaggerated, kind of humorous fashion, although you have to have a certain sense of humor, I guess, um, to, to laugh. Um, but it uses kind of satirical tools uh, to make this commentary and does it in a in a way that's not, um, it, it's not as rigorous as an allegory would be, um, where there's a necessarily this kind of one-to-one relationship between everything that happens in the film and everything that happened in the scandal, but rather comments it on it and kind of, Um, on intermittent fashion, and in ways that if you're not paying attention, maybe you don't necessarily notice, but there's some very explicit references. There's some that aren't so explicit, but I go through all of them uh, in the book.
2: And one thing, when you were talking, you mentioned um, sort of like this this idea of the Watergate is a nightmare, right? And especially when we are thinking about what has happened to in American politics and American public now, we might look back and not think of Watergate as that big of a deal. Right. Right. But at the time it was, Um, but I also, I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit about how that similarity with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Like this was kind of um, very different than what we've seen in horror films before and what we'd seen in film. And so now again, we sort of might look back at it and, think of it as tame or yes. campy, yes. Um, but at the time it really was not. Um, and so I think that's really an interesting thing that sort of comes out in this um, sort of analysis as well.
1: Yeah, I, I mentioned that in the introduction and I don't go too far down that road, but I that was something I did want to get across as kind of a general um, argument of the book that here we have this political scandal that really was just a horror show. Um, with lots of villains and a chief monster kind of in Nixon um, that genuinely frightened America and threatened the the idea of of, uh, the country and its government being able to continue as it had. Um, And historians have been able to sort of... um, When uh, America was going through the scandal, these things were just being revealed in pieces and then uh, afterwards, it became more clear that things really were, that the threat was was incredibly great um, during that period. Um, and that even when uh, Gerald Ford says our long national nightmare is over, and then a month later pardons Nixon, um, the nightmare isn't really over, that the the distrust in government—it was pretty well. I mean, the the break was already the gener- the credibility gap was pretty wide already, thanks to Vietnam, and then it was it became even greater during Watergate, and continued from there. Um, and so, this distrust in government and this kind of uh, nightmare situation of our leaders maybe not having our best interests in mind um, was uh, the seeds were planted there. Um, And so I want, I'm trying to get that across to the readers. I want them to appreciate that because, I mean, I wrote this book over the last few years. And so, you know, meanwhile, (laughs) we have multiple impeachments, multiple scandals, like all these things that encourage commentators to say worse than Watergate (laughs) in their commentary to say, here's what's happening. and, And they're trying to, that's supposed to impress us by saying it's worse than Watergate. And so anyway, I think that pe- when people look back through the lens of history and look back, you know, now a half century almost uh, on at, at Watergate, um, you're right that the scandal doesn't seem as, as uh, scary as it was at the time. And the exact same goes for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as you point out. Um, and thanks to the... Te- and again, there's a relationship here. There's a causal, influential relationship where... The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a film that broke a lot of boundaries that changed the way people looked at horror. Um, the film itself is not actually um, that. While the the terror in the film is quite high and the tension is high um, almost throughout the film, um, it doesn't have the gore and the blood that that later films would have, or even earlier films had. Um, but in any case, it did sort of influence uh, horror filmmaking in a way that now, and I grew up through this, you know, I, I, I rented all those videos, all those slashers and things in the 80s. And so I was, you know, I, I was exposed to all this just like everyone else was. And, um, of course, all of that has increased in terms of the graphic violence um, and the things that would make a, a, a viewer today who maybe is, is sort of trained on recent horror films look back at a film like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it doesn't seem quite as, as affecting as it really was. But anyway, I want to make that same point about both the scandal and the movie that it was scary stuff and groundbreaking or, or unprecedented uh, in various ways. Um, And it had this incredible impression on audiences and the American public.
2: I have to laugh because I think um yeah, I'm a, a horror fan and you know getting my my teenage son is a horror fan but like saying to him I want you to watch those slasher films I grew up with and he's he's like that Freddy Krueger's just boring and I'm like it's not boring it's amazing right but it's like yes like there's a very different um world when you think about and when you can watch like little clips that just show you all the deaths right or here's what's right. going to happen um so I'm like You've got to love, you know. This the old stuff is really good. I promise.
1: Yeah, yeah, and the pacing um, is different, and everything is is yeah. different. But yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, so before you even um, sort of go into the film itself, you sort of start out with the beginnings and and writing partners, right? And looking at um the writing partners with Texas Chainsaw and as well as the the Watergate scandal. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you even saw. This connection and this relationship between the two, when it comes to just um, write the the writing, right the the writers and presenting this information.
1: Yeah, the book I should say is it's organized as you alluded to. It's organized as kind of a minute by minute discussion of the film, and it has timestamps. So there's sections instead of chapters. It's kind of sections with timestamps, and I begin with the opening you know, the credits and that I go through every kind of moment of the film in that fashion. Although I end up, uh, especially in the early part of the book, I try to give the context for the making of the film and sort of situate that, help the reader understand that. Um, and then also for Watergate, that was kind of a challenge because it's such a complicated story, but I tried to kind of lay out the, the main, moments of Watergate during the first part of the book, so the reader is, can be oriented that way. There's actually a chronology in the back of the book that has all the dates, so you can uh, reference that if you need to. But yeah, I talk about um, kind, of the, the, kind of the backstory of the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I talk about this partnership between uh, Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel, who had been together for a few years. They had done a film previous to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they knew each other. Um, And wrote the film together. And I actually, that gave me a sort of a chance to talk about how the Watergate scandal, how the story of Watergate was told uh, through news reports. And I actually bring in uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein there, a couple of writing partners who wrote some important articles, uh, helping expose the scandal and keep it in the foreground, at least, as it built, built in importance and as it grew. And as more and more was uh, discovered, Um, and so it's kind of interesting because though those two pairs of writers, they're both, they're all about the same age. They're all like late twenties, early thirties, and they're they have sort of similar interests and maybe a similar kind of uh, position uh, in relation to the Nixon administration, and and one in which they, they are critical. And they want to uh, explore and and show um, corruption and criminality and so forth. The Washington Post uh, writers are much more literal about it, right? They're investigating and and they're they're telling us they're trying to to write a true story. Um, the two guys who are making a horror film, they're going about it in a different way. They're going to uh, write this story that maybe has the this kind of indirect reference to what's happening in terms of uh, the government and the, the corruption that, that they're noticing and, and are being surrounded by. So I kind of, uh, I, I take us through those first few minutes of the film. And I, as I do that, I'm trying to sort of fill in the, the gaps and tell the story of Watergate and the break-in and uh, the cover-up and then the cover-up of the cover-up and All the kind of twists and turns, the Senate Watergate hearings that lasted through the summer of 1973, which was when the film was shot uh, starting in July and August. Um, And so all these things were were happening at the same time. I try to sort of give all that at the beginning of the book and then to enable us to get into the film and the various moments of the film that that further suggest connections between the two.
2: Right at that very beginning, too, I found, you, you know, you start out with the opening scroll of the film, um, which I found fascinating. I never knew that it was John Larroquette's, uh-huh. you know, first sort of credited voiceover. But like that. And I still remember hearing that some people thought this was a true story. Right. But it wasn't a true story. So um, even setting us up with how um they they created this scene or this space. um. Of these crimes, these bizarre crimes that were happening, that some people really thought was based on it. It, it reminds me of um, Fargo, right? The, these are based on true stories, but they're not. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that kind of I, I mentioned the Blair Witch Project and Pamela, the the 18th century novel, and both of those, it was the same situation um, where the the marketing and the promotion of that movie and then that novel, actually, people thought that was a real, it was letters written by a 16-year-old girl, and it was actually a 50-year-old man who wrote those letters. Um, And it was all fiction, but people thought that it was a real person. Um, Yeah, the the makers of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they set that up beautifully, and they assign a date. It's August 18th, 1973, when all of this is happening. Uh, And it does make it seem like Um, all of this is, it's almost like a documentary, but it's, it's obviously not that, um, but it's based, it seems to be based on true events, um, which is something that is, I think, very expertly suggested at the beginning of the film, um, was made much more explicit in the promotion of the film and like the, the movie poster and the, the commercials and things that, you know, this was a true story, uh, but it wasn't. Um, and so they exploit that for sure. And I try to talk about those things too. Like I, I, this, this book has a great uh, obvious obsession with Watergate and Nixon. Uh, but I try to talk about other things too, like other significances and um, other meanings and uh, storytelling strategies uh, in the film uh, along the way to give kind of a comprehensive view of the film.
2: And one of the things you have um, throughout the book are either stills from Watergate or the film, or texts or media that has been used, which is really helpful too to sort of show that and um, show some of these connections throughout. So um, th- that those visual connections in the book are really, I I really found um, helpful and an added sort of plus to to the overarching text
1: Yeah, good. I'm glad of that to to hear that cuz we you know, we chose those images and there were lots of things we could we, we we didn't include and we could have done things differently with that. But I think I agree that they kind of um they help sort of keep you especially the, the way that I wrote the book where I'm going through in such detail that it seemed to make a lot of sense to share those details and screenshots and and things that helped illustrate what was going on and then the the With Watergate, too, like I was saying, I'm hoping that people maybe who have a vague awareness of Watergate, that they really learn about Watergate by reading this book. It's like a fun way to learn about Watergate. If you already like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you're going to really sort of uh, become informed and educated about uh, what happened and all the details. And those pictures help with that.
2: Yeah, I really like them. And what, you know, you talk about how you're trying to sort of You know go through the film but also talk about some larger context and so one of the um sections that i thought was really interesting was um the the vegetarian the meat slaughter right thinking about the meat industry so you talk a bit about sort of setting up even um, when they're right at the beginning when the kids are in the van driving along talking about like slaughtering animals at the slaughterhouse um, and also sort of vegetarianism and how that comes out with what is going on culturally in the U.S. Um, and also with the president. So can you talk a little bit about you know, that um, sort of cons- the, the slaughterhouse, the beef consumption, that, that whole kind of um, that context and what you saw?
1: Yeah, I loved writing sections like that because I felt like I, I had a pretty good background. And I had sort of educated myself really well about the film and about Nixon and Watergate. But there are certain things that I was learning about as I was writing the book. And that was one of them. There's a moment early in the film where they pass by a slaughterhouse. Um, and in fact, you mentioned that the photographs, this is, I'm kind of proud of, of this, where we have a, there. there's a, a, an impl- implied connection being made between the youths who are riding in this van uh, and the cows being led to slaughter and there's one kind of cross cut where there's a character who's kind of looking he's leaning over and he looks a bit like and then they cut from that to a a cattle and they look very similar Um, but in any case uh, and in fact that's kind of where the story is heading because as it turns out we have these uh, these killers awaiting them who are going to kill them and cut them up and and use them as as food um but that that whole sort of connection enabled me to talk about well and and to explore like well what was what was the situation in america at this time in terms of meat eating and where were we at the time and i knew about nixon uh nixon was a a big fan of meat (laughs) and Uh, a meat eater himself. And, and there are certain stories involved that he had a brother who ran some, uh, some hamburger restaurants, uh, that ended up sort of getting him into some hot water because of loans and things. Um, but, uh, Nixon was certainly pro meat and so were other presidents and uh, LBJ who was before Nixon, of course had his, uh, ranch and big barbecues and so forth. Um, but if you go and you look at the statistics that America was, was eating more and more meat, and in fact, Nixon very proudly, there was a radio address from 1971 where he proudly points out that Americans were eating uh, more meat than ever. Um, and then, not coincidentally, most likely, uh, we're talking about the rise of vegetarianism during this period as well. And I reference a, an important uh, book that was written uh, during this period, during the early 70s that kind of was advancing the idea of vegetarianism. Um, for some, that was inspired by uh, you know, uh, their uh, sort of ethical stance on harming animals and using animals for food. Um, but um, in any case, all of those things kind of come together. And of course, Toby Hooper enabled uh, that or in- encouraged that kind of uh, exploration as well. He made statements about the movie being a pro-vegetarian movie. Um, he, Again, some of these statements, I feel like his tongue was in his cheek sometimes when he would say, they'd ask him, what is this movie about? And he'd say, it's a movie about meat. <laughs> and it's like, what? Um, and again, he's sort of being very tantalizing and encouraging uh, viewers to look for subtexts. And to think about, okay, here's a movie with killers and cannibals and so forth, and, and in fact, it's a it's an anti-meat, pro-vegetarian movie. Apparently, he couldn't eat meat during the making of this movie. It's one of the the backstories. But in any case, that's an example of. There's a few things like that throughout the book where I'm not exactly sort of I I set my Watergate obsession of, aside for a moment and talk about other political issues of the of the period and how the film. You know, it's it's a political satire that's not just all about Watergate, but mostly I talk about Watergate, but we're able to go down those side roads, too.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And you threw it, like I said, like, and like we've talked about, you sort of do this, you know, sort of scene by scene. So I get to just pick the ones that I find super interesting because we can't talk about all of them and I'm talking to you. Uh, but another one that I really love that you talk about is like, um, the Killer in the Tie, which sort of relates to like Nixon in his tie, but also, which I thought was really fascinating, your sort of little tidbit about George Lucas and Return of the Jedi and yes. um, sort of and writing Star Wars. So can you talk a little bit about that sort of like, um, you know, that killer in the tie and, and the, you know, Nixon, you know, wearing his suit and tie all the time? And all right.
1: I had to make a decision at some point. Like, so I... I, at some point along the way, I decided to write the book in this fashion where I was going to go minute by minute. And I've actually had a uh, couple of readers tell me that it was a little bit like watching the movie. Reading the book is a little bit like watching the movie, although I would sort of think of it as you're watching the movie and it, you've got this uh, person sitting next to you who's constantly telling you about Watergate and politics and, and these things, providing a kind of DVD commentary that's got this very interesting sort of different focus. Um, but at some, so I, I had that idea. And like I said before, I didn't want to, I wasn't too excited to try to, uh, sort of shoehorn the movie into this allegory about Watergate. However, the, as we get into it more and more Leatherface, the, the one who does all the killing in the movie, um, and who wears the mask, um, he seemed to be connected to Nixon more and more. Um, and the others seemed to be like Nixon's men who were um, co-conspirators and who, were, who had to kind of cover up his crimes and, and sort of enable him uh, in a way. And so that identification I'm already starting to build that up by the point we, by the part of the book where we get to the first murder um, where Leatherface kills um, the first character, uh, Kirk. And it's the first time we see him in the film. And here's this weird looking figure with a mask, and he's wearing an apron, and he's got a tie on. Um, And it's weird. It's like, you know, and then we discover that he's kind of like working at home. And he's sort of like a what is he doing? He's some kind of butcher, and he's there, and he's working, and he's wearing his tie at home. And then later in the film, when he shows up for the dinner scene, he's wearing a suit. Uh, in, a, in a different mask and, and so on. And so there's this weird formality um, as Leatherface inhabits these roles, it seems like. And he's sort of the working man with his tie on during that part of the film where he, he's first killing. Um, and so that you know, I talk about Nixon and famously always wearing a tie everywhere he went, um, even in informal settings. And there's actually pictures in there of him bowling with a tie and there's one picture I don't have in the book where he's walking on the beach in his tie, um, but we see that constantly. And then there's I have quotes from Nixon talking about how he, he just felt more comfortable uh, wearing a tie. Um, and so that was another one of those sort of moments where it was, it was fun to sort of make a connection and maybe further this idea that maybe Leatherface is kind of a crazy, exaggerated, grotesque version of, of Nixon, in a sense. And they certainly have that in common there they're wearing a tie. Um, and then t- you mentioned George Lucas and that comes in a section where I talk about how um, so many uh, movies and pop culture products of this period seem to have some kind of Watergate reference to them. I talk about some of the other movies from this period from 1974, the disaster movies and the Godfather movies and um, these movies that don't, maybe they aren't, even on the surface, they don't seem like they're necessarily political movies or, or have that sort of focus, but they can be read as commenting on Nixon, Watergate, a corrupt government in, in different ways. Um, and that's where the story of George Lucas comes in, because he is actually during the latter part of Nixon's presidency, he's writing that first draft of Star Wars. And it's later that he, I share sort of a story from when they're making Return of the Jedi, where he's talking with fellow screenwriters and and he reveals that the emperor is based on Nixon. In fact, he says he is Richard Nixon, like literally, um, which I think encourages that what I was just talking about, that kind of idea of, well, gosh, Leatherface, what does Leatherface have to do with Richard Nixon? Like, on the surface, it just seems like an outrageous thing to say. But you could say the same thing about the, the evil emperor and the, you know, the empire and, and the Star Wars films. Like, what does that have to do with Nixon? Well, if you kind of uh, dig in here a little bit, you can kind of see that these corrupt, you know, leaders or figures of importance sort of at the center of a story uh, can be aligned with the corrupt president that these, pop culture producers were um, responding to when they made their their movies and wrote their stories.
2: Yeah, and it, it reminds me, so another thing that I, I really appreciated was um talking about, you know, you talk about Leatherface and the mask and sort of also pop culture production is that Nixon mask, right? The Nixon face, which, and you talk about references, um, probably like, like you said, one of the most iconic ones being used the the president's in Point Break, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But the use of that, um, the Nixon mask, and and especially with the APA conference and um, Mm -hmm. all that. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sort of Leatherface with his mask, but also with that iconic Nixon
1: mask. Yeah, there's another connection, like with the ties, uh, Leatherface and Nixon wearing ties. I have, this is a section that comes in the latter part of the book, and it's called Leatherface and the Nixon mask. I think it's the longest section in the book, actually. And I talk about Leatherface's masks. um, People who are devotees of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they know all about this, but Um, many do not don't realize Leatherface actually wears multiple masks in the movie that he's got different ones and they seem to correspond to different roles that he's playing. So when he's like a sort of a homemaker in the kitchen, he's wearing this uh, what they call the old lady mask with a gray wig. And then he's got another mask at dinner where he's the pretty woman and so forth. Um, And so the mask is, I talk about in that section how it, it is his entire identity is comes from the mask, which literally are human faces that they've lifted off of victims um, gruesomely. Um, All of this is kind of suggested in the film. We don't see any of this happening, but we see him wearing these masks, um, which he has taken from their victims. And now he's inhabiting their personalities or something uh, as he wears those masks. And so I talk about Leatherface's masks And then I talk about the iconic Nixon mask and how it was first introduced actually at his inauguration back in 1969 and was essentially this uh, commentary. I I, I won't go too deep into it, but how the mask, um, it was uh, used to criticize Nixon, obviously, and to make fun of Nixon. And to comment on this politician who many observed as being kind of without an identity, that he was a purely political creature. I have a quote from Gary Wills, the great historian, who, who describes him as the least authentic man alive, and that he was entirely made up of what the voters wanted or what he thought you know, constituents wanted. And we, we talk about politicians like this all the time now, um, and we always have, really. Um, but Nixon was kind of an extreme in this in this way, where many uh, sort of felt like he didn't even have his own beliefs or ideology. He just kind of was whatever it was that he thought the voters wanted. And so he kind of built his identity. He took it from others and that he himself was kind of wearing a mask um, in a figurative way. Uh, the, the real Nixon was down under there somewhere, but he had this mask that was the politician Nixon. And so the, the, the actual literal mask, the mask that people wore and went to protests swearing, and they actually, uh, kids uh, went out on Halloween uh, wearing Nixon masks uh, in 73 and 74. Um, the, this was a, a pretty severe criticism uh, of Nixon. And along the way there, I talk about all the different sort of occurrences of the mask and different sort of famous places where the mask popped up. And one of them was that APA conference that you you refer to, the American Psychological Association, uh, where there was a, a, an individual who, who wore a sort of a version of a Nixon mask there uh, to hide his identity. Um, he was there to comment on uh, homosexuality. And... Right. The, and to address kind of an official position of the APA about homosexuality being some kind of disorder. And he was there. He was a, an academic who didn't want to reveal his identity and so actually wore a mask in order to present at this conference. And it had this great influence on the subsequent uh, treatment or, or definition, I should say, of, of, of homosexuality, at least officially speaking, uh, from the APA's perspective perspective. Um, He had this, it was this pretty momentous occasion. And curiously, he wore this. It was altered. It didn't really look quite like Nixon. It kind of, it it was a Nixon mask that was sort of changed around. And in the book, I suggest it actually looks a little bit like Leatherface. Uh, This was a couple of years before the movie uh, when this happened. Uh, But that was another one of those uh, moments. But I go through all of those um, instances of the Nixon mask. And I try to get across the point that the mask was uh, it was an object of of criti- It was used as a, a tool of criticism. Uh, that it was a very serious uh, damning thing. Uh, this Nixon mask, and then later, after Nixon resigns, and then we get into the later uses of the mask. It becomes almost this kind of pop culture cliche. Um, we see it everywhere. Point Break. We see it in these places where uh, villains. It's a great way to to a quick way to identify somebody as a villain. The, the person who wears this Nixon mask and we can kind of laugh at it and, and it's sort of a funny thing. Um, but at the time it was very serious. And so I'm drawing another connection there. I'm saying here, we have a killer in a mask um, in this horror movie that seems to have a lot of interest in Watergate and Nixon. And maybe there's some kind of connection there between the masks.
2: So another connection that I really loved was um You talk about the scene where, you know, the old man, um, they're bringing Sally into the house and he's like, look what your brother did with the door. He has no respect for the door because he sort of, you know, ripped up the door and you compare it to, um, the break in the plumbers, um, and, and, you know, Nixon's group breaking in. And I love the photograph you have of the file, the, you know, the filing cabinet that, um, was saved, right? So can you talk a little bit about um, that connection there too and um, and, and the sort of the connection you made between those?
1: Yeah, and I'll admit that with some of these things I have my tongue in my cheek a little bit um, when pursuing some of these things because it's I'm basically trying to look at the film from the perspective of late 1974 and thinking about all the things that we're seeing on the screen and what they might remind us of, uh, or, or remind an audience watching it at that time. Um, or remind a person who's very interested in Watergate and, and Nixon as I am. Um, what are these things that are happening on screen reminding us of? And so, yeah, there's, a, that's one of the, probably the funniest line in the whole movie when they're, you know, they bound and gagged poor Sally. They've, you know, all of her friends are dead and now they're bringing her into the house and, um, she's already been in that house. She's been chased through it before by Leatherface, who on the way had carved up the door with, with his chainsaw. And so when they get back, it's this weird family. It's Leatherface and the old man. He doesn't have a name, but he's referred to as the old man in the, in the script. And uh, the hitchhiker, who is Leatherface's brother. The old man seems to be their father father or maybe brother. It's never really specified. And so there's an uncertainty there. But the old man, who's sort of the head of the house, sort of in a, in a nominal way, they get back and they've got Sally with her with a sack over her head and she's all tied up and they're bringing her in. And he has to stop and observe all these car, these cuts in the door. And he says, look what your brother did to the door. And doesn't he have any pride in his home? You know, this kind of ridiculous moment. Um, like, who cares about that? You, you know, look at what you guys are doing right now. And it kind of resembles the, the bumbling of the Watergate burglars. Um, and I'm talking about G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt and the ones uh, that actually committed the... There were two break-ins at the Watergate Hotel. Uh, they broke in once and then they came back and it was the second one where they got arrested. But they had been involved with earlier... Um, similar break-ins, including one of this Dr. Lewis Fielding, who was the uh, uh, the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, who had leaked the Pentagon Papers. Um, and so in an effort to, this is one of the first things that this group of, uh, they called them the uh, Special Investigations Unit, and they had the nickname the Plumbers, um, one of their first escapades was to go out to California and break into this psychiatrist's office and look for uh, material that would reflect poorly on Daniel Ellsberg that they could use against him in some way. And it was a completely futile, futile mission. They didn't find anything, but they did manage to go in and and tear up some file cabinets and to make a big mess. Um, And so it's kind of the, the, the tearing up of the door, um, seems to be kind of, uh, there was, it, it suggested that idea that, you know, there was this kind of, um, just like the, those who are responsible for Watergate and then for the cover up of Watergate, um, there's a kind of dysfunction in that family when it comes to their criminal enterprise and, and the crimes that they're committing and the, their efforts to cover up their crimes. And of course, this is a terrible way to, to, uh, keep yourself non-conspicuous, cutting your front door all to pieces with your, your chainsaw. But in any case, it seemed to suggest a connection there.
2: There's many times as I, you know, when I was reading that I kept thinking, like, how did you even think this was a good idea? <laughs> Read about. I'm like, why did you think you get away with that? Why didn't you just pay somebody else to, you know? um so oh, right, wait, right. I we've been talking for you know like we've been talking for a while. So I have one more section I want to ask, and then if there's other sections that you really liked, but I really love this section about no sex as well, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. which is think right thinking about like the sort of male dominated spaces, um, in both Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but also in sort of the Watergate and the hearings and all of that, and also um just the fact that when we think about horror films now and often even those slasher films um sex does play a large role but it didn't at all in texas chainsaw massacre so i'd love for you to talk a little bit about that section and sort of those comparisons of what you saw
1: yeah there there are readings very compelling readings of the texas chainsaw massacre that do talk about the kind of the sexual what what's happening there with the violence the violence is replacing sex in some way and, and the absence of of females from this family um, there is the dead grandmother upstairs i guess but this uh, there are some compelling readings that that talk about those things but on a literal level when we look at the plot of the film um there is no sex in the film and the moment that where i talk about that in the book is is when the, uh, sally who has been uh, now she's bound to a, the chair at this weird dinner scene um, she seems to be suggesting to the hitchhiker, she says, I'll, I'll do anything. Um, and that's sort of implied there. And th- there's no response. There's no, uh, th- that doesn't even seem to be on the radar of, of these individuals in the story. Um, and it's one of the interesting aspects of the Watergate scandal is that essentially it sort of covered all areas of culture, um, except there wasn't necessarily any sort of sexual angle to the, the, all, the, all the corruption and the criminality that was going on. There are, again, there are like readings of Watergate and there are some who claim certain sort of conspiracies that involve women and sex and, and these different things. And I guess, actually, now that I think about it, um, G. Gordon Liddy and his harebrained scheme uh, the original scheme that ended up uh, producing the Watergate break-ins, uh, he did have sort of ideas of getting prostitutes and putting them with Democrats and getting them into trouble somehow, but that, that never came to fruition. That never really happened. But um, I end up, one of the things I, I have, a, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, old comedy records, Um, And I have all these old comedy LPs and including a lot of uh, satirical records about Watergate, a lot of comedians and different artists who um, made records during Watergate and commented on them. And there's one that I quote in that section, this Mark Russell, actually, who ended up having a long career as a political satirist. Um, he was doing. A, I have a record of his, and and he, he, kind of a pretty obscure one actually. But he was talking about the Watergate scandal. This was just as the hearings were starting, and he was talking to an English, um, a reporter. And he was asking, you know, how do you like the scandal that we have going here? And 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 the response was, "There's no sex," <laughs> uh, from the the English reporter. And so I. I draw that connection there and I talk about, you know, there, there are those who, uh, who, who commented on the, uh, who, who talk about the film and how the absence of women maybe produce this kind of dysfunctional, um, environment, this family, you know, or this version of a family that these men represent. And then there are those who made a similar commentary on Watergate and how the absence of a, of a, a woman influence, or, or the influence of of the wives, or the people you know. We have all men here who are who are part of this uh, cabal, this corrupt group of uh, co-conspirators conspirators. And so, in any case, that's what that section is about.
2: Yes, and, and I think at one point one of the wives was kind of like, if you'd actually like listen to us or pay attention to us, maybe you wouldn't be in. You would have some of these like. Problems or issues, some of the issues would have gone away, right? Or that's, some of the that's problems right, yeah. yeah um, was, so, it's... like I said, we've been talking, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've been talking for a while. Um, is there other, is there any other section like you know that you really enjoyed writing or that really um sticks out to you? There might not be. But...
1: I enjoyed writing about uh. Well, the, I got to talk a bit about astrology in the book and mm. kind of the place of astrology and American culture in the early 1970s and relate. In the film, there's a character who's, uh, she's pretty devoted to astrology and she's reading from magazines and books and talking about, uh, you know, all of these uh, foreboding uh, readings of what's going on uh, and what the stars are saying, are, are, are are causing uh, the kind of havoc that, that um, is happening on earth and which of course all of that is kind of foreshadowing of what they end up uh, dealing with and talking about um, some of the, the famous astrologers of the day. There, and there was one story of this one named Gene Dixon who was writing bestsellers and who managed to kind of uh, get some kind of influence on Nixon um, via uh, Rosemary Woods, his secretary, uh, and even get a visit in the Oval Office. And, and so that was fun to write about astrology. Um, I enjoyed writing about and talking about, I, I, there's a section called The Southern Strategy, where I talk about that uh, people uh, know this from, from political history, uh, the strategy of uh, the Republican Party that preceded Nixon and that he picked up on um, to exploit essentially you know, these disaffected whites and and the South uh, for votes um, without necessarily engaging in the more overt kind of uh, racism and and pro-segregation tactics of like a George Wallace. Um, And then about the film, sort of using a kind of Southern strategy too, um, the filmmakers uh, setting up this uh, story set in the South, um, these uh, involving this, this kind of rural hellscape, um, uh, the backwoods nightmare of uh, a kind of exploiting a, a sort of common trope um, of getting lost in these sort of places and, and then finding yourselves encountering these crazy um, cannibals, you know, uh, subhuman creatures, um, all of which are, are, you know, kind of exploiting ideas. Um, about the South and so forth. So that, that was fun to write about. Um, There are other, I I think, um, you know, obviously Watergate was my, my main focus uh, throughout the book, but I enjoyed kind of those side roads and those detours that I was able to take um, along the way.
2: So my final question usually is that, you know, and this book just came out, so you might not have anything to add, but if there's something new you're working on or right now that you sort of want to talk about, or or if there's something going on with the book that you want to sort of talk about and promote, so do you have any last things that you want to sort of promote or say that this is in the works?
1: Well, I, I, yeah, I can promote a couple of things. One is the book I wrote right before this, which was a history of poker called Poker and Pop Culture telling the story of America's favorite card game, um, which came out just a couple of years ago, uh, which talks about, a lot about popular culture and film and poker uh, and its prominence uh, in American history and um, in that context. So anybody who's a poker fan might find that interesting. Um, going forward, now I find myself working on, I don't know if this will become a book or an article or something going forward, but now I'm creating a new, course i teach currently in the american studies program at unc charlotte and i teach a nick in fact right now i'm teaching my nixon course um and i'm creating a new course which is a film course and it's going to be focused on uh horror and science fiction and talking about political messages in in horror and science fiction films going back to the 1950s and you know, great movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all the way up to the present. Um, and so that was, this course obviously was inspired by this book where I write this book about uh, a horror film with a political, uh, with an interest in making some political commentary. And so I've got myself a list of films and I'm writing lectures and exploring those. I've got, uh, I'm working on that now. So I've got like you know, Planet of the Apes, uh, right before me uh, to work on, and then Night of the Living Dead, and, and I'm working my way up to uh, more recent films. And so that's kind of where my thoughts are, and maybe a book down the road, but but we'll see. I'm actually not teaching Texas Chainsaw Massacre in this class. I've kind of decided to do other things in the class, uh, but I'll probably bring it up <laughs> in the class somewhere
2: there's so many things right there's there's no um like yes there there is no there's you'll you will always find something right
1: yeah yeah and it's fun. So, it's fun to go through the different eras and think about politics and horror and and sci-fi and how all that has has evolved over the years yes
2: yes and hopefully we'll remain in um the film world and not enter our real world all the time so right yeah um But it's been great. So again, Martin Harris is the author of Leatherface versus Tricky Dick, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as political satire. Martin, thanks for talking with me on New Books Network. It's been really great.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.